Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Now, it's rare that I usually preach the things that I'm going to preach today, but the Lord had impressed it on me deliberately to take time and invest in the family marriage as a system and parenthood and today i'm doing our first topic praise the lord jesus christ many people do not know actually that raising children is a ministry raising children is a ministry keeping your marriage is a ministry the whole family system as god has designed it to keep it to preserve it and produce something out of that to affect positively the next generation after you're long gone. That, ladies and gentlemen, is ministry. And it's so deep to the heart of God that actually scripture tells us when we are in the places of qualification, the scriptures tell us that there are things that are expected of God by us, especially who are ministers, before we minister to the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That is why the Bible says in Timothy, for if you cannot rule your own house, how shall you take care of the church of God? That means the yardstick that God uses to weigh my ability, my potential, my tenacity, the wisdom that is necessary for me to run a successful ministry is based on how I rule my house. And that is so deep. That is so deep. For if I cannot rule my house, how shall I take care of the church of Jesus Christ? And that is not only to us who are preachers, it's to every believer. How do you worship on the altar when you cannot rule your house? How do you serve in the church when you cannot rule your own house? So it's important for us to understand the magnitude, the seriousness of, yes, we are touching marriage, like I said, but also parenthood, raising the right children. I have been blessed and graced to father people early. I become a father very early, spiritually. And I have had the opportunity of adapting people, children, both spiritual and physical, right? Some of them, when they joined the faith, their parents abandoned them. Some of them lost their parents early and they did not have anyone to take care of them. So I have had the unique opportunity of raising children. My biological is not the first one. I have raised children for a very long time. So I'm speaking not only with a long experience, but also I have had the opportunity of knowing thousands and thousands of people as children. Praise the Lord. I know so much. I know so much. Because now I'm clocking into 20 years of active ministry. So you can imagine how long I've raised children myself. You understand what I'm saying? There's things that I know. And to be able to pastor thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands across the world, it also gives you another view of life. 
Also, being a pastor has allowed me to know things some parents do not know about their own biological children. I get so shocked when a child tells me, Daddy doesn't know, Mommy doesn't know, and I ask you, please don't tell them. You see? And they tell you things, and your jaw drops, and then you sit down with these parents, and they start speaking, and they don't know their children because you have had a version that you're sure the child never wants to know them. So this child has actually learned to act certain parts of this movie. And, you know, some parents think they know their children. Oh, I can trust my daughter. I know my daughter. I know how she thinks. I know how my son thinks. Hmm. Really? You see, so as a pastor, I've had the opportunity of hearing that other version that many people are not able to hear. And I've raised many of you. So I've seen the challenges of not being raised right. And as pastors, we have paid the price. We have paid the price. We have argued with some of you. We have punished some of you. We have quarreled with some of you. We have disciplined in many ways. We've done all these kinds of things. And then, of course, no chastisement is enjoyable. So you see tears a bit. You see anger. I'm not going to talk to pastor for two weeks. Some of you take months without talking to us. And then one day you realize what we meant and then you come back and then you're sorry, you know, and then you learn through experience and then you see, so I've had the better part of you. I have seen you grow. Many of you, I'm with you in a week more than your biological parents are with you. I have walked a journey, many of you, your teenage age, you've grown before my eyes. I've seen you grow. You see, so the things your mother didn't teach you, I'm paying the price of it. The things your father did not teach you, I'm paying the price of it. I see it all the time with the boys I play basketball with, the people at the office. You see things and you're like, hey, okay. Now, we have to deliberately teach parenthood. Deliberately. Yes, we are teaching about lame men walking. We're teaching about blind eyes seeing. We're teaching about the dead raising. Wonderful, but families are breaking. Kids are dysfunctional. Pastor's children, I have personally, I have sat down with pastor's children, some of the notable names in this country, and some of them are on drugs. Some of them are oriented sexually in some different way. You see, I've heard things in these years. Some time ago, they brought me about 13 children in a secondary school, about 12 to 14. And they were all drug addicts, 12 years to 14 years. And they were all addicted to drugs. One kid brought and said it's selling and they're all addicted. So if a child is addicted at 13, what do you think is going to happen if God does not come through? You see what I'm saying? You had this COVID season alone because of the closure of schools. Last year, I believe they said 17,000 girls in northern Uganda got pregnant. 17,000. 17,000. And these kids are school going, 14, 13, 15, 17. They're going to become mothers. You, you see? These are lives whose destinies might change forever because we have some schools that would not allow these pregnant children to go to school which I don't understand, which I don't understand because they have made a mistake, I agree. But the lives in those wombs are not mistakes. 
And they're only trying to make out a certain future for them. Those lives in the womb. You see? So you leave that to God. You leave that to God. For the sake of that womb. She's trying to be a better mother. You see what I'm saying? And you cannot tell the circumstances of after birth. You see what I'm saying? So, anyway. Grace versus law. So, what I'm saying? So, we are challenged and we have questions. I sit down with parents whose children are on alcohol. They're promiscuous. They're crazy. And these are the people that are going to lead our nations tomorrow. They're going to be our presidents, our prime ministers. Uganda, they say 78% is below the age 35. We're the second youngest nation in the world after Niger. And that's the critical mass that many a time doesn't even have direction. You see, so God has given us a mandate as parents. And I tell people it's more than just having biological. If it is possible and God has provided you with enough wealth, please raise a child that has not come from your loins. Do it. Do it. Why? Because it's a ministry. Don't only raise yours, your biological ones. Raise somebody else. Because there are many children on the streets. I preach to many of them. Many of the street children in Kampala, my friends, personally. Some we've won to Christ. Some you get to know their stories. You take them to school and they're back. Some are on drugs at 12. But it's important to see that you're pouring your life into another person. And they grow up quicker. Before you know it, they become successful people. Somebody shout, hallelujah. And so there's a portion of scripture that we have used in teaching parenthood. And when I studied it, I was amazed at how many parents don't understand this. Yet they quote it, they use it, they teach about it. It's in your books, it's in your CDs, it's on your flashes, it's everywhere. Every person has sort of landed in this portion of scripture, but people don't accurately interpret it. And I felt that for the beginning, I wanted to first help us interpret this because it's going to give you so much revelation and open your eyes to what God intends for us. And I believe it will make us better parents. Somebody shout hallelujah. We're all on a journey and we're learning and unlearning. Proverbs 22, the sixth verse. Common scripture. Train up a child in the way that he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Many believers in the world think they understand this portion of scripture. And many of you up to today thought you understood it until I teach it. After teaching it, you're going to realize you had not understood it. Yet it's a very powerful scripture with a promise. Very powerful promise. This scripture is the guarantee that actually, if you know how to raise a child, they will not fail in life. This is a guarantee. He says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart. In other words, if I should know how to train up this child in the way they should go, I will not worry about them when they grow up. I will not worry about them when they go to university. I will not worry about them when they got a scholarship in Canada or America. I will not worry about them when they meet their peers and their peers want to go to club and luring them to go with them. I will not worry about my daughter if a young man says I want to have sex with you before they are married. I will not worry how she will respond because I have raised her right. 
That means that there's a given frame of life where God has given us a certain responsibility. And if we can hit certain marks and milestones spiritually, we are guaranteed of how our children will respond because God is not a liar. He says the way they should go. When they grow, they will not depart from it. But you see, the emphasis here again that I want you to underline, he said in the way they should go. The word should there is a commanding language. It's not a negotiating language. It's a commanding language. It's not negotiating. It does not care how that child at that point will interpret what you're doing because children will not understand everything a parent does. The things God has done and we feel like he doesn't care about us, he is insensitive, he's unfair. But at that point, we did not understand what he was up to. But he was training us in the way we should go. We can't negotiate over that. We have to go the whole way that he will fulfill what has to be done. And because it's the way they should go, as a parent, you are responsible in the way your child should go. Sometimes in expressing liberties, and I've seen this in developed countries, US, Europe, and stuff, where actually they have the biggest record of wasted kids. Somebody in the UK was calling them yobs, a yob. Look out that word in the dictionary. There is a liberty and freedom that they've given brains, and these brains have not yet grown to the place of reason and maturity to handle that liberty. And sometimes in trying to make them free to relate with them, they've actually destroyed them because at that point, they were not able to think even at the place where the parent was. And so the governments are giving certain liberties on children who are not able to design it. How can a 13-year-old or 12-year-old demand a sex change? For God's sake. What does that kid know? If you study human growth and development, psychology teaches you, until a person is 30, they've not even matured in reason yet. 30, 40, they've not yet matured yet in reason. You see what I'm saying? Full reasoning. To apply logic to weigh life and interpret it the way it should. And then you allow a 13-year-old to change their sex? You see what I'm saying? So that God will judge them because they did not take the responsibility as parents to do what should have been done. We are to train up our children in the way they should go, I repeat. And because this is a grace language, it's not the way they should not go. You understand, when you find yourself so much on what they shouldn't do than what they should do, you're actually in the wrong doctrine. You are communicating a very conflicting vibration spiritually. It's not the way they should not go. It's the way they should go. So it's the principles that a parent deliberately emphasizes. And sometimes, even when we find ourselves saying, no, you shouldn't do that. But really, we should say no in the language of the should not a student who has understood that. Now, 
To understand this, you need to study the Hebrew word called to train up. Train up. The Hebrew word is kaunak. 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 Right? To train up. Kaunak. And to train up, there are three definitions distinctively in defining what it means to train up a child. One, inauguration. Very important. Two, dedication. Three, discipline. Inaugurate, dedicate, discipline. Inaugurate, dedicate, discipline. And these words are deliberate. Let me begin with inauguration. What do we mean by inauguration? When I joined university, in the uni Christian university that I went to, we used to have what they used to call an inauguration week. So that is a week you sit before the professors, your teachers, your tutors, and then they define a picture for you on what you should expect when you enter university. Of course, many aspects are changing. The liberties increase. And like the high schools many of us went to, now you have the choice of hair. You have the choice of what time you go home. You don't have curfew anymore because you're no longer living in your father's house. You're going in a hostel. Um, you're going to dress how you want because it's not a uniform. You're going to do whatever you want, how you want it. And so you're growing into a responsible citizen. You're coming out of your teenage age and you're now making 20. And they have to teach you how to commit in life. The ethics of living a successful life. The ethos, the pathos and those other things. So you had what they used to call an inauguration week where they try to take time to help you understand what you have entered, that they will prepare your brain not to mess it up. Because in that liberty, we saw kids get pregnant that first year. In that liberty, we saw kids who had never taken alcohol take it for the first time. We saw kids go to club who had never gone to club. We saw all manner of madness in that first semester. In fact, many students fail in the first semester. Why? Because they're trying to reconcile this liberty with the bondage in courts they've been in in high school. You see? This is the most typical example I can use. When you get jobs, I remember my second job, I think, they gave us some week to orient us, to inaugurate us, to prepare us for what was expected. And so it is with training up a child, one of the most primary principles is you have to inaugurate. Every child has to be inaugurated. Every child has to be introduced to the world. Every child has to get that first orientation. Why? Because what you call a birth, bringing a child in the world, is actually a life coming from one world into another world. That's how God sees it. In the womb, they were in one world. Are you following? In that world, they have parts and elements and systems that make the essence of their person, but none of these things are exercised. They have eyes, but those eyes don't see. 
They have a nose, but they don't breathe through it. They have hands, but the hands are not moving as they should. They have legs, but those legs are not walking. They're folded. So they're in the world. And they're feeding. They're growing. They're comfortable in that world, actually. Very comfortable. And so, from that world, the day a woman pushes out that life, this child has come into a new world. This world has laws. Spiritual and physical. It has principles. It has worlds, eons, periods in them. It has elements that this life has no consciousness of. Elements like time. Elements like life as we know it. They have no understanding. The brain is not developed. It doesn't know anything. Can you tell a newborn baby that somebody has died? Would it understand? It doesn't understand. They don't have a language yet. They cannot speak. They'll only communicate through crying. So they're in a new world. And to enter that new world, there are things when you study Jewish culture, especially Asian cultures and some faiths, there are principles that they have built deliberately to inaugurate children into the world. There are two things that are important in this inauguration because remember, Scripture has proved to us that a parent can mold the destiny of their child. Scripture has said it. Times out number, that a parent can mold the destiny of their child. And this is the first thing. One, I mentioned this once years ago, but in a sentence, that the first words spoken in a child's ears at birth are very important. Very, very important. The first words they should hear are important. Why? Because you see, much as their physical body and mind have not yet made sense, but these are souls. And because they're souls, there's a part, a divine distinction or definition in them that sort of connects to spiritual activity. The Bible says, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I sanctified you. He sanctified the man before they were formed. He ordained the man before they were formed. He called them to be a prophet before they were formed. So when this child is formed in that womb, that essence of God that calls them a prophet, that sanctifies them, that knows them by name, that essence is eternal. It's edgeless. It's not subject to the edge of this child. It does not appeal, neither resonates with a human being's thinking. That has been entirely separated by how this child grows. Jesus, even at birth, was Jesus. You see that? Yes, there was a process of how the child had to grow in wisdom and stature, in favor toward God and man. But there is a reason why when he is born, words are spoken over his life. Simeon the prophet spoke in the life of Jesus Christ. He was inaugurating him. You see, he spoke. The Bible says he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And then he said, 
let your servant depart in peace. And then he speaks of the things that this boy should be. All of that is a process of inauguration. You see, when you give birth, the first words that your child should hear, or at least the words that are spoken in the first days of this infant, they're very important. When my daughter was born, I was not with her. My, my wife was in a different place and I was in a different place. I could not get to her easily. I went to my niece and I inaugurated my child. I spoke into her because I know proximity is not access. I'm a spirit man. I spoke into her destiny, the things that she has to be. You see, you learn to speak. Muslims, I've shared this, Muslims have a culture where they recite their done in the right ear and they karma in the left ear. Now those recitals, if some of you who are Muslim can translate them. I went to a Muslim school, I studied Arabic, I read and write some of it. I know the meaning of the Adan or the Ikama. And if I can sum it up for anybody who does not understand Islam, the first words this child hears are, God is sovereign and there is no other God like Allah. And he has a prophet, the most notable one, Muhammad. That is the most defined prophet. And the child is hearing these things in their ears. And in the, they're told how to pray, that they should pray, and that the prayer to Allah and Muhammad will invite them to success and life, that they should submit their will and life to Allah, that they are Muslim, even at birth. You see what I'm saying? So, they're speaking to a very deep essence in this child. And then somebody asks themselves, I saw one of our leaders saying, how does somebody get a Muslim name and put bombs on themselves and explode before people? They were trained up. They were inaugurated. You see what I'm saying? Whatever is told to their brains when they grow up was secondary. The first training was the words they had the day they were born. That is why the moment your child comes in your arms, first thing, welcome them to the world. Tell them you're welcome to a world of possibility. You're welcome to a world of power. You're welcome to a world of influence and affluence. You're welcome to a world of grace and peace. Violence will be far away from you. The wicked and unreasonable will be far. Those that hate you will not have any effect or consequence over your life. God will favor you. He'll place people before you to advantage you. Wealth is yours. The wealth of kings and princes will pour into your coffers. You're speaking words. You shall be wise. You shall be great. You shall be this. You shall be that. You shall be that. Those are the first words that a child should hear. Jesus is Lord. He shed his blood for you. Preach that first sermon when your child comes into the world. That's inauguration. That's training up. Somebody shout hallelujah. That's training up. Inaugurate them to that world. Tell them this world is peaceful and your world shall be of peace. It doesn't matter how much violence and hatred and terror you'll hear. It will not come near you. The diseases that kill the people of this world, they will not kill you. The perversions of your time will be far from you. This is you. 
inaugurating your child and speaking into their destiny the way they should go. Something of in there connects to you spiritually because you're a parent. You understand what I'm saying? So it's very, very, very important to inaugurate our children through the first words spoken in their ears. When you go to meet a friend who has given birth to a baby, speak words over that child. Those words you speak are important in the presence of the parent. They're very important. You might take them light, but they are very, very important. Because when Simeon met Jesus, he spoke words. He says, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. He says, God has prepared salvation before the face of all his people. A light to light the Gentiles. This is a man speaking in the destiny of Jesus Christ. He's a light to light the Gentiles. He's a salvation for God's people. These words are important. Oh, but God knew the mandate that he had placed on the Christ. Yes, but if Jesus went through inauguration, it was important to inaugurate that body because it connects it to the spiritual mandate. Somebody shout hallelujah. The second thing in inauguration is the naming. In fact, in Jewish culture, naming was such an important thing that the child was named on the eighth day. It was the eighth day. You see? And the number eight actually means new beginning. You see? Because they believed that in the naming, you are defining the nature and character of this individual. You see that? You're defining the nature and character of this individual. You see, recently, I sat a wonderful friend down and I told him, look, if you read the Bible, almost every man or woman, almost every man or woman lived out the name that was given them. Nimrod was called rebellious. He is the first man to bring demonic worship after the flood. Jacob was called a trickster from his mother's womb and he stole his brother's birthright. You see, Delilah, the deceived and strange one, she's the one that destroyed the destiny of Samson. I could name them person by person and I could never emphasize enough the power of naming a child. I could never emphasize that enough. So I told this individual, some of us, our parents, did not know God. They did not have a relationship with God. Their foundation was warped. So there are things that they did not know. You see? And so some of us were named names who were not supposed to be named. Or at least I thank God that when my mother told me that when she was six months pregnant of me, she had an encounter with God and God told her to name me Grace. It makes sense because... We don't name our children. God names them. He shall be called Jesus Christ and he shall save men from their sins. He shall be called John. You see, you see God appearing to mothers or fathers. Not only is he defining the mandate and destiny of those children, but he even tells them what they shall be called. I have a gentleman in the ministry. His wife got pregnant and they get 
to the ninth month and he says, me and my wife are praying and the Lord told us, you will give us a name for the child. And I told them, I will pray to God to give us that name. So we prayed. And to show you the power of naming, it was one morning on my bed and I heard an angel whispering in my ears the name of that boy. He whispered it so clearly. I never actually checked out the meaning of that name, so I went to the internet to check out the meaning of that name, and it meant something very deep. And so, when this child was born, I gave them the name. And when I gave them the name, the parents of this gentleman, the father, actually, of this gentleman, who is also a man of God, one day in his meditations and prayer before the birth of this child, as he's praying, he hears a name. And then he says, God tells him, when this child is born, this shall be his name. So he writes it in a piece of paper and puts it in his Bible. So the day that this child is born, when the father of this gentleman comes to hospital, he asks, what name have you named this boy? And it's the exact name God had told him and was written in his Bible. That means names are eternal. Stop naming your children dog names, cat names. Some of you, you have nice names. Well, they sound nice, but they don't mean anything in the spirit. Or some of them are even adverse and destructive to the destiny of a child. But because it sounds nice being mentioned, we were raised in a generation where a woman saw a soap opera and she saw especially his Mexican and Spanish things. Salvador. The next day, their son is called Salvador. Camila. And you're like, what? She saw a soap opera and she liked the name and how it sounded in the mouth. And she named the destiny of a child. She didn't even know the meaning of the name. You see what I'm saying? One day I was with a young man in the ministry and we used to call his name. And out of the blue, the Spirit of the Lord just told me, do you know actually that name is not his name? I said, what? It's not his name. So I went and I checked out the guy's name, the meaning. And his name was a name of a Greek god. So the next time I meet him, I ask him, do you know the meaning of your name? And the guy told me in his 20-something years now, I think 30, he told me, I have never known the meaning of my name. He had never known the meaning of his name. I told him, your name is the name of a Greek god. Parents have named their children names of Greek goddesses. You see what I'm saying? And yeah, you know, I'm born again. My name is sanctified by what? Okay, if they called you Lucifer, let's just say, and then you got born again, how sanctified can you sanctify it? <laughs> so that when they say, Lucifer, you say, now mine, mine is sanctified. This one is different. You see what I'm saying? It didn't make sense. Because when you say Lucifer, there is a spirit that responds to that name every time it's called. I'm sorry, I'm going to use a few examples. Diana. Diana is a goddess. It's a bar. And as hard as this can be, 
perhaps they saw the princess of Wales and she was a good woman and then they said when I give birth I want my child to be like princess Diana Diana you understand I'm sorry I'm going to use examples some of you don't know how serious these names are spiritually tell me one notable minister that you've been seen heavily used and they have a goddess's name a Greek god you understand I'm not saying God can't use you but you frustrate a lot in the spirit you are limited somehow because every time that name is called it's commanding some things in the spirit realm but we're living in a generation that is so compromised and it thinks that these things are small again Lucifer can you call a child Lucifer or if you call them Lucifer and then they're born again will you say that the name is sanctified therefore who they call Lucifer is different from me me I'm not the other one me I'm the holy one the righteous one you cannot you see what I'm saying because names are powerful and some of you I have told you to change that name you're frustrating your marital destinies over names you're frustrating your ministries individually over names yes a new creation yes I agree you read scripture and you'll find every time a man encountered God and there was a transformation evident God assigned another name when he came in contact with Abraham he assigned another name when Jacob met God he got another name because even with God it is not true when the assignment contradicts the name he changes them he met Peter and he said this is the guy I'm going to build a foundation on he told him from today you're not Simon but Jonah the son of Jonah but now you are Simon Peter because I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail if it's not important why would he take time to change Jacob to Israel why would he take time to change Abraham to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah if it's not important that encounter defined a certain assignment and if the assignment conflicts the name God will change the name you became born again some of you I have actually deliberately changed your names how can they call you in African translation hatred you get born again and you still carry the name hatred some people have names like cast they're translated as cast and you're born again and you still keep cast do you know what happens in the spirit realm when that name is spoken over you and it's pronounced over you and that's your identity in the spirit because the name is beautiful and some of them tell them no this is more serious than you think some of you you're frustrating the assignment of God on your lives because the name contradicts the revelation of your essence in God and it takes so much love to tell you the truth some of us are more attached to the name than we are attached to the assignment of God on our lives go back everyone and search and ask what is the meaning of my name what is the meaning of my name find out what's the meaning of your name one time I was banking and I had this customer <laughs> and the guy's name was Semusambwa Semusambwa Baganda understand what I mean. Samuzambwa means a chief of demons. 
That was the name of a man. So you get born again and you stay same someone. Some of you were named after gods in Buganda. And those gods represent something. Mukasa. No offense. The day you were born, they said Mukasa. It was spoken over your life. Okay, sanctify it. Lucifer. Let's sanctify Lucifer. Listen. If you're serious about salvation, take certain things serious because God takes them serious. Pray about the name God should give your child. Receive it from God because it inaugurates them into the world they'll function. Recently, we lost a man in the country. He was a lawyer and he was called Kasango. Kasango means a crime. And the guy truly lived to his name and he committed a crime. You, you see what I'm saying? So be careful about the naming. Be careful about the naming. And some of you, I don't care how old you are. For the rest of the years you have on us, change it. If you feel it contradicts with who you are, change it. Change it. By God, change it. Hallelujah. So you've been trained up in the name of a Greek God. And some things might frustrate your life and you don't know why they are. But it is so. That's why some names, I'm telling you, you study history, church history. At least I've been a student of church history. Some names cannot stand in certain assignments because they contradict them. They contradict them. They contradict them. You can't ordain Lucifer's love, can you? You can't? You? you can't. It's just a name. It's not just a name. Somebody shout hallelujah. Shout glory to God. That's number one. Number two. Dedication. That is why we, in this ministry, dedicate children almost every weekend. Child dedication is not just a political or religious ritual. One, it is the commitment from the parent that they are ready to raise that child in the way they should go. But two, it's the day when a parent gives their child over to God to dedicate that child to God is a very, very important ritual. In fact, some call that a rite of passage. When a child is born, the naming is a rite of passage. Child dedication is a rite of passage. The next rite of passage is when they are 12 going into 13. There has to be a rite of passage. That's why Jesus Christ, at the point where his parents forgot him in the temple, they were actually doing the ritual, that rite of passage. At 12 into 13, they used to train children certain aspects of life, responsibility, accountability, hard work, self-control, because they are going into adolescence and their bodies are responding differently. How to be responsible human beings, how to grow into commitment. Those things. So they used to take time to train them 
They used to bring 12, 13-year-olds into the temple to train them. Every year it was done in Jewish culture. Up to today, in many Jewish cultures, they still have that rite of passage where they teach teenagers how to be. Because many of you, the reason why you're messed up now, your teenage life, somebody messed it up. Somebody messed it up. It was perhaps a movie somebody showed you that you shouldn't have watched. A thing that was done on your body that you shouldn't have done. Words that were spoken, you were exposed to things because you did not have the opportunity to be raised right and taught how to walk the life of a teenager. And now many of us can look back and wish we knew certain things before we entered our teenage age. And some people, the mistakes they have made, they are irreversible. Some of them, we lost them. I lost a friend with HIV and she got it when she was a teenager. Very beautiful girl with great dreams. You see, so we lost friends. Some of you, it's even a miracle that you're past teenage age. Some of you, the effects of teenage age are still on you at 40. Some things have refused to leave you because you're exposed to too much. Somebody didn't prepare you to live your teenage life. Tell your neighbor, these things are deliberate. So, back to the point I was giving. Dedication, very important. You remember the story of a married woman called Anna, married to Elkanah. And uh, she prays for a child in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11. She vowed a vow, the Bible says, and said, Lord, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. That was a Nazirite vow. She dedicated her son to God before she even conceived. And do you know, it's so interesting that when you look back, God was waiting for Hannah to understand that the child coming out of her womb was to be used by God. And when she comes to the realization of dedicating a child to God, God opens her womb. In fact, some wombs up to today are shut because they don't have a revelation of what they are to carry. When they get the revelation of the child they will carry, many of them, their wombs open. Like Hannah's story, the moment she got the revelation that I'm supposed to raise the next judge, the next prophet for Israel, the Bible says the Lord opened her womb. So not all wombs are shut because the devil is afflicting people. Some wombs are shut because they are waiting for the carrier of that life to take certain responsibilities and a certain understanding. Because if they don't, they will raise what God has consecrated as normal. Remember, she said, if you give me a man-child, she did not say if you give me a girl or a boy. She didn't ask for a child. She was deliberate. There was something in her spirit that stirred her to feel like she's supposed to be raising a certain person because God opened her vision on the need of Israel at that hour. That's why she's specific. If you give me a man-child, I shall give him to you for service. When God heard that, he understood that this woman can raise the next judge or prophet. She opened that womb. And that is why the Bible says she weaned that boy up to the age, was it 12? And up to 12 into his 13 age, she took that boy and handed him over to Eli and say, I dedicated this boy to God. But those first 12 years, God needed to make sure that Hannah knew what she was supposed 
to do. Some of you, it's not about what you would become, but it's about what you're going to raise out of that womb. God is looking for the next president from a certain womb. He's looking for the next revivalist from a certain womb. He's looking for the next apostle or prophet from a certain womb. Because some things must be taught a certain way. Look at the story of David. And I'm going to say something that will sound contradictory, but those who are mature will get it. Do you realize that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, had something that God was looking for in raising the next king of Israel. It was not in the wives David had. And you can tell when the man is sickly, already Adonijah and the rest of the sons and daughters of the king, when they go to celebrate Adonijah as king of Israel, the Bible says, Haman, the prophet, says in his own words, your servant Solomon stayed behind. Because Bathsheba, there was something about that woman and how she raised that boy. There was something. He learned a lot in scripture. He learned a lot from the breasts of his mother. He learned a lot from the wisdom this woman gave him. You see what I'm saying? Now, you start to see certain contingencies in scripture that sometimes even contradict the way it should work. And sometimes you will not question God on why or how. But still God honors that patriarchal declaration that out of your womb shall come the next king of Israel. And it was so. God didn't raise it on any other woman except Bathsheba. Yes, David's mistake was there. But it was important the womb Solomon came from. When you study the life of Solomon, he testifies about his mother and what she taught him. He says, I was my father's son. Tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He told me and said unto me, let your heart read. He continues to say all that. But then, when you study the Hebrew in what is defined as tender, as beloved, in the work that Bathsheba does in Solomon, it's amazing. That is why later on when Adonijah, when the rest of the sons of the king follow the right order of ordaining him as king after in the place of his father while he's still alive. When you study the conversations of Bathsheba and the prophet, you realize that Bathsheba was not an ordinary woman. There was something God was looking for in raising the next king. So especially you women who have wombs, carry lives deliberately. Pray for your children and prepare yourselves deliberately because a woman can define the destiny of a child. Hannah did. She made a Nazarite vow and God honored it. That was 1 Samuel 1.11. Somebody shout hallelujah. Jesus, Luke chapter 2.22. The gospel of Luke chapter 2.22. And when the days of her purification that was Mary, according to the law of Moses, was accomplished, they brought him, who? Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. After the days of her purification... They get Jesus Christ, the son of God, and they brought him to present him to the Lord. Yet he was loved. So, how then would you not present your child to God? Dedication is one of the way we train up. It is deep. You might never understand. It's not just the words the priest speaks over your child. It's deep. And I see many churches don't do this. But it's very important. We dedicate children every Sunday here. We do it. 
Because it's important to speak in their lives. Somebody shout hallelujah. <laughs> and I just noticed the synchronicity. First Samuel 1, 11, right? Luke 2, 22. Amazing. Those things never skip me. Somebody shout hallelujah. Third is discipline. Discipline. I said this once, that from the first five years, the first five years of your child into the seventh, when I say seven, I mean perfection. The first five years into the seventh year of your child, if you are to discipline your child in a godly manner, the first five into the seventh year of your child, you should teach your child obedience. That is the primary principle. Five into seven, obedience. By the time your child is five into seven years, if you cannot get it by the fifth year, you have a window up to the seventh year. You must train your child the first seven years of their lives to be obedient. The simple receiving and obeying of instruction. How do they receive an instruction? How do they obey an instruction? That's very important. Because if a child goes past seven, it becomes so hard to instruct, to command them. It becomes so hard for them to obey instruction or any rule or law. The first seven years are important. And I can never emphasize that enough. It's the first discipline, obedience. Because rebellion is disobedience. Sometimes I sit with parents and I see small things and I worry. And I'm like, I don't know what, I don't think this woman or man knows what they're raising. One time I was somewhere and a parent called their child, come. Oh, he's about three, four. Child refused. Come. Child refused. I said, come. Child refused. They chased them. The child refused. And it became a game. And I saw something wrong. My daughter is one year old. Ask anyone around me. When I say, uh-uh, she knows daddy doesn't want this. She'll turn away immediately. Because it's important to teach her to obey. Now. That's why you see children grow up and beat their, their parents. You see children insulting their parents, especially in Europe. African parent, they'll wash your mouth with soap and flip you by the time you're out. <laughs> you won't even tell the difference between north and south. And amazingly, we're keeping our marriages better now because of what these parents did. We're more behaved people. Sometimes I watch CNN and I see little spoiled teenagers in 45-year-old bodies. They're abusing their president, they're abusing their prime minister, talking stuff about their congresswomen. There's a way they talk and you can really see something was not tamed. If I say come, you what? You come. Of course, the first 60 weeks, I always tell parents, the first 60 weeks, children don't know exactly what they're doing. So give them a breather. The first 60 weeks of their life. But by the time they get into one year, one year, two months, three, there, start. They can do all their drama at six months, but when they get one, two years, find a way to train them to obey you. I told you, my child is one, but when my wife says, come, 
she will come to her mother. Because we have taught her to obey. You have to teach your children to obey. I raise children as well. You call the child, come, she refuses. Two, three years. You hold her hand. Come, you hold it. You sit with her for 30 minutes. And she cries, prays, pleads, flips. Everything comes out of her face. And you tell her, do you know I'm holding you? No. When I call you, you what? You come. Because there is nothing children hate. Eh? Like being put in one place and they can't move. You don't need to slap them. No. There are different ways you can do it without beating them up. But if you call them and say, ah, hold her for like 30 minutes. Leave me. Ah, she beats you, also beat her. Are you hearing me? They don't beat parents. No negotiation. Hallelujah. No negotiation. That one, when it comes to beating, no negotiation. The Bible says, spare the road. Spoil the child. You see, I tell parents, avoid the road as much as you can. Avoid the road as much as you can. But you will know when you must. When your child starts to become into a calypto beast, God says, here, you're responsible. You know, because these little things can become eh, funny. She's an angel, and then tomorrow they start doing something, and you're like, huh? What? God will give you the wisdom. You will know that now this one, this is a demon. This is not just a young child. This is a what? This is a demon. Cast it out. Somebody shout hallelujah. Shout glory to God. So I know many Americans wouldn't want to read Proverbs 13 verse 24. And they would want to interpret it the way they want. But it says, he that spareth his road hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. See, me, for example, I looked at my life. I examined it and I realized if I was not spunked, me, I can't speak for anyone. But I knew what was here. I can't speak for anyone. But now I can look back and buy my dad a soda and tell him, thank you. Thank you. Because some of us, <laughs> some demons could not go by talking to us. Do I have a witness? Mm -hmm. But it's those things that have actually raised us. You see what I'm saying? So avoid the road. But when you must, I'm not talking about this thing of beating kids like you're fighting with fellow adults. You know some parents don't discipline. No. They fight. Poo. You know, poo. They even kill their babies. No, 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 no. That, you also have a demon. That's another demon. You understand what I'm saying? You're dealing with something different. But there's wisdom in how you will discipline. My point is, most importantly, your child must learn to receive and obey instruction. Somebody shout hallelujah. The other thing I learned, and the Lord taught me many years ago, and I've done with many of you, and even my own child, I've learned to speak to the heart. The secret about speaking to the heart is, and my eye for is wonders why I don't bark at my child, but she listens. Because if you don't learn to speak to the heart, you will bark. You will bark. You'll be like a dog. You know, because kids can mess you up. Those kids can mess. You understand? And you've seen parents who are so aggressive and they're so backing. They don't handle their child with grace because they don't know how to speak 
to the heart. It's a very important thing for you to know how to speak to the heart. Why? Because the heart is more receptive than the mind. That's why eternity is. That's why understanding and the language of love is. When you speak from the heart, it doesn't matter how much rebuke comes, it comes with love and they can receive it. You see what I'm saying? So, I tell parents, maybe your question should be, how do I speak from the heart? Okay, I'll answer that. You are a spirit. Isn't it? And you speak to God with your spirit. But when you get to your child, you only speak to them with your carnality. And yet they are spirit beings too. They have souls. And those souls come from God. You see what I'm saying? Why is it that when a woman is pregnant of a child, there are things that will happen and this child will seem like they're hearing? Because they're souls. There's a life. That breath of life from God connects them to the spirit realm. You see what I'm saying? So I have learned, and I do it a lot. I speak to my child in my heart, with a heart. So even though I'm communicating with the mouth, the authorities from here, I speak with my child from the spirit. Because one, they cannot doubt love when you're speaking from the heart. Two, you will not need to shout or back. Tell her, hey, stop it. And she'll walk out. Mm -mm. Simple. You know, say, mm -mm. That's it. They should understand it. At least find a way by God's wisdom to make sure that you speak from your spirit. Why? Because when you learn to communicate to your child from your spirit, when they're not with you, you will discipline them. When they're not in your dwelling, they will know what you're thinking. Because if you cannot do that, that's the problem of now the kind of children we see these days. They know how to act before their parents, but they're different beings when their parents are away. Because you've not learned to live in the heart and minister to them from the heart. When you minister from your spirit, you'll be present with them always. They'll hear your voice louder than any back or any spunk. Somebody shout hallelujah. The other way of ministering from the heart is to grow a heart of grace. To minister, learn to minister grace to your children. Show them grace. If a child has messed up and you discipline them, at one point, walk to that child. When you're sure they're dealt with, walk to them and show them grace. It's amazing. They'll start hearing your heart. I know parents, when the child, she says, let her cry until she's done. That's wrong. Don't ever do that. Why? Because this young brain is learning to connect to emotions. And studies have shown that parents who leave their children to cry through make them emotionally insensitive or upset. That's why there are kids who, you know, she can watch somebody fall, bah, and then she laughs. You killed something in her. Somebody has fallen badly. And the first reaction, ah, if you do that, they used to leave you to cry. The whole day. Seriously. Do everything. Discipline, do what? But come back and show them grace. They'll start hearing your heart more. But some of you, you enter a home and it's as though parents and children, they're all fighting each other. You understand? You fight, they fight the whole week. You don't want to talk to your child. How? How? Why? Why would you do that? Does God do that to us? No. One of you has to be the mature one. Yes, when they're young, usually they come to you. You walk away, they come to you. But one day, 
it will get into their head that he doesn't care. She actually doesn't care. And that is the day you lose your child emotionally. And many parents think that when she comes or he comes to you crying, and then you ignore them, you're doing a service to them. But one day, they will outgrow that need. And the day they detach to connect them again, it will be so hard. So yes, I'm mad with you, leave me, what? Give her that few minutes to cry out. And when you feel she's done, walk and show her grace. She'll start or he will start to hear your heart more too. Show your child that they have your attention. As one way of uh, speaking with your heart, show them that you are attending to them. You're not absent from them. Mobile phones have made us so absent. Television has made us so absent. We don't actually listen to our children as they are growing. Show her that I'm actually listening. You'll have her heart. You'll have his heart. Show him. Show your boy that I can be busy, but I will put aside this phone and listen to what you're telling me. In there, you're learning to connect with them with your heart. Somebody shout hallelujah. The other thing that I need to emphasize before I close, in the season of teaching them obedience, teach them to honor the voice of God. Teach them to honor the voice of God, especially from the fifth year. Teach them to honor the voice of God. In fact, in Jewish culture, by 13, a child understands the way of God. They've designed life that way, that by 13 they should understand the way of God. And in part, it's why Jesus could teach, speak certain things. He didn't get everything from his soul. Some of that he got from Mary and Joseph. Are we following? Teach them to hear the voice and honor the voice of God. Honor is a very important aspect. Secondly, to learn to honor their parents. That's something you teach in the first seven years. Not only should they receive instruction, but learn to honor. You see? Three, teach them to honor anybody older than them. Anybody older than them. Those first seven years are important. Anybody older than them. It might be their elder brother. He has wronged his young sister. True. But there is a way she should respond because he's her elder brother. If you don't fix that, you've messed up her marriage. You might think you're just dealing with children's issues. But for emphasis sake, it's important for your child to know how to deal with anybody. Let me tell you, we were raised in a generation where anybody would discipline you. That's the generation that raised us. A man would find you on the street doing something wrong and he tells you lie down and he'll get a stick and whoop you. And you go back home and you tell your parent and your parent even takes you down and adds another two or three. That's the generation that raised us. One time I was dealing with a lady. I saw her child do something wrong and I told her, don't do this. And the child told her, you are not my daddy. And the mother looked at me with this eye of, like, tell her daughter, tell him daughter, tell him. Tell him, daughter. I said to myself, I'll never say anything. Even if I see this girl doing the worst thing, I'll look away. 
And it only took a few years. And I met this woman once with her child. I actually wept. Because I could see she lost her child. The child has something disturbing. You see what I'm saying? Some people never understand the seriousness and gravity of raising children in the way of the Lord. Teach your children to obey people who are older than them. Listen, I'm a pastor. God has graced me to pastor younger. He satisfied me early. I have people who are older than me who call me father. Some are pastors. They are 60, they're 70. And they call me father. And I know that by that place, they are actually spiritual sons to this ministry. But I call them fathers too. Because he told us to regard all men as fathers and all women as mothers. I have women in the ministry who are submitted to me and they're in their 50s and 60s. They call me father, but I too call them mother. Because that's just the way it should go. I shouldn't just say, Harriet, because she submitted to me. You see what I'm saying? There's a way I deal with anybody older than me. Regardless of what they've done, there's a way I deal with anybody older than me. Because when I was little, when we fought with my young brother, the first thing my father would call me and say, Grace, bah, this is your elder brother. Then we talk about the issues later. Then they can punish him for what he has done. But firstly, I should not fight with my elder brother because he's my elder brother. There's a way I should not talk to him because he's my elder brother. He can win a battle if he has to. Not because I don't have the strength or ability to do it. But let me tell you something. When now this person grows into adulthood and they have to deal with listening to their bosses, do you know why the millennials, this younger generation can't work? They don't want to work. They're the most, most rebellious people at work. You can't hire them. Even I am struggling with the fear of hired. You can't instruct somebody to do something and they listen to you once. I have to repeat myself four times. You understand what I'm saying? Because they can't listen to anything higher. It's hard. They struggle. But something began when they were little. They were little. Some of them, it's hard for them to listen. I worked in banks. I would see how somebody speaks to their boss. And I'm like, you can't speak to your boss like this. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. You can't speak to somebody who is above rank that way. You see how people speak to us. We are their pastors, but somebody can speak a word and you're like, wow. You understand? Especially, but if this is a man of God, if you know that this is your man of God, he could be wrong in your terms. But the fact that they know God more than you do, mark how you speak to them. That is not my problem as a pastor. Something was not taught right when they were growing up. And we are just paying the price of it. You've seen how our leaders have addressed the president. Listen, he might have his issues, but there are things you don't speak over the fountain of honor unless you are raised wrong. You understand what I'm saying? You cannot get a minister, for example, and then you talk to them like you're abusing your fellow peer. You speak words that only a spoiled kid would do, and they're doing it at 40, at 50, and you can tell something is wrong. Their fathers and mothers didn't do the right job. And many of those actually who do that, if you study them, they were raised from dysfunctional families. Ugandans can abuse on Facebook. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. But many it's upbringing. Many it's upbringing. Somebody shout hallelujah. Lastly, teach them life skills. And begin with the basics. 
If your child is seven and you're still laying their beds, you're spoiling them. Yeah. If your child is seven and you're still laying their bed, that you love them, no, you're actually what? Spoiling them. Yeah. Teach them those basic first things, doing laundry, washing utensils, personal hygiene. You know, how do you deal with your peers? It's those small things. And, you know, parents just get their children, take them to school, then busy themselves, and then tomorrow their kids become animals, and then they start going to overnights to pray for them. They start cursing them, and then they leave something behind that has no definition. Why? Because we are not taking responsibility. So, inaugurate, dedicate, discipline. That's training up a child. Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. Father, we thank you for your word, for the entrance of your word brings light and giveth understanding to the simple. Time would not allow, but I believe we have many conversations over this as we learn to and unlearn. I pray for every parent right now listening. Some feel like it's late, but by your grace, you can still do something, even where things have fallen. I'm praying for that parent who says, I think I messed up here, but where do I begin from? And I feel wherever you begin from, God can help you somewhere and give you wisdom and grace to redeem what you can redeem. And to help us be better parents for those of us who are parents and those of us who are plan to be parents that God will make us better parents and that will raise ministers the best destinies of these worlds will be defined in our homes in our households our kings will be raised presidents will be raised prime ministers will be raised the best engineers the most ethical people the most efficient people, the most hardworking people, the most responsible citizens, that they will be raised in our houses. When we do that, we've actually preached right in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you've never given your life to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You just repeat these words after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you shed your blood for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Tonight, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. The message you have just heard was brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number 041-466-4291 or email us at fenerocompala at gmail.com. You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowships at Uma Multipurpose Hall from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can also catch the live stream at livestream.com slash Fenero. Venero, make manifest.